Hi, my name is Kunal, and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally who are leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. This morning from the New York area, we have the founder and chairman of SALT and the managing partner of Skybridge Capital joining us today. Please welcome Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be on with you. Thank you for having me. And uh, how are things with you in light of COVID? It's, it, are you back in the office? Uh, what's going on? Uh, yeah. So, you know, we're back in the office. Uh, we've been in the office since May 3rd. I made the executive decision actually today to shut the office down for the rest of the summer. Uh, the COVID Delta variant is up. It is uh, uh, not uh, ideal situation. The hospitalization rates are up. And I, you know, my number one priority is to keep the staff safe. So we're going to work remotely between now and Labor Day, and then I'll revisit the decision after that. But I think the good news is, is that we've had no incidents of COVID-19 in the office since we came back, but I want to keep it that way. And thus, uh, we've made the decision to, uh, to, to shut it down again. Um, let's uh, jump to the first question here, shall we? Please. So, Anthony, tell me about yourself and your background and how it led to the path of, you know, starting Skybridge Capital. Well, you know, a long, a long story short, I always wanted to have my own business. And so when I left uh, law school, I went to work at Goldman Sachs and I wrote a note to myself at Goldman that someday I would have my own business. And the date that I picked was the day that my school debts were fully paid back. And so on May 30th, 1996, after working at Goldman Sachs for seven years, I had paid off my student debt to both Tufts University and Harvard Law School. And so shortly thereafter, in December of 1996, at the age of 32, I started my own business. I then sold that business to a company called Newberger Berman. It got bought by Lehman Brothers. Uh, way back in 2003. And so I was there for two years. And then I went to the head of Lehman Brothers, a gentleman by the name of Dick Fold, and told him, well, you know, my lifelong stream is always to be an entrepreneur. And I'd like to go back to running my own business. And so that's a little bit of a long story. But good news for me is I started Skybridge 16 years ago, less my uh, 11 day fiasco in the White House. I've been here for the last 16 years. And we've grown a very nice business. It's, a, it's got 60 employees, a little bit over $7 billion in assets under management. Um, and uh, obviously, we created the SALT Conference, which we've done now for the last 11 years. Fantastic. And Anthony, if, if you could kind of, you know, discuss in a little more detail, specifically, you know, you've, you've come out in the news, uh, particularly about this Bitcoin fund and, and uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, what's kind of made you get into it? And, and do you see this as a long-term play? Uh, well, yes, I definitely see it as a long-term play. I, I don't think you should be in Bitcoin or other crypto assets if you're looking at it for a short term. I think the volatility is too high. I think the uh, short term, 
it's anybody's guess. But I think long-term, if you're taking a three, five, or 10-year position and you're looking to the future of what will ultimately be decentralized finance, I think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will have a large role in that. And so a result of which I want to be, I want to be a part of that. And uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, SPACs, what are your thoughts on it? And, and first of all, you know, for our listeners out there, some of them might not be fully familiar with this concept. What, what is a SPAC? Well, I mean, it's an acronym. It stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. And so basically in very simplistic terms, uh, the SEC allows you to raise capital in the public markets for what is, you know, they used to call it a blank check underwriting. So the SEC will allow a group of managers and a board to get together, raise money. The prospectus can say, we're raising this money to buy a company in this area or this generic term or this generic idea of what the growth would be. And then um, they have a hundred and I guess it's now, it's actually more than that now. It's, how H, it's actually 18 months of time once they go public where they can attempt to buy that company. And so why, why are we doing that? Well, a lot of private companies used to just directly list and go public, but many of these companies feel that the regulatory burden and the process of going public, all of the bureaucracy related to going public is sometimes just too difficult for them while they're trying to manage and execute their business. So um, this is a way for them to short circuit the public offering process of a private company just going public. They can just slip themselves into a SPAC that is already public. And so that was very popular has been very popular over the last couple of years. It's cooled off recently. Um, I know, Kunal, that I'm not somebody because the Wall Street Journal said anybody that is somebody has a SPAC. And that means all the famous people and all the people in the know. And I laughed when I read that article. I said, okay, well, I'm clearly not one of those people because I don't have a SPAC. Uh, but I've been offered to do a SPAC more than once. I made the decision not to do it because I really feel as it relates to our client base, uh, I have to be 100% confident that I could buy something that my clients could make money from. And I didn't see the opportunity and I wasn't confident enough in our ability to do that. So we have not, for those reasons, we have not done a SPAC. In regards to the industry, uh, what is what is your long-term outlook for, for SPACs in general? Do you feel like it's a now oversaturated market, um, where do you feel like it's sitting now? You know, I think it's a very interesting question. A lot of people would answer that by saying it's an oversaturated market. I don't see it that way, actually. I see SPACs, as long as there is this regulatory hassle related to going public, and as long as there is a regulatory issue, I don't see the SPAC market cooling off in terms of the volume, the price activity may cool off, but that's really a result of uh, supply demand. That's a result of issues like uh, the quality of the company that's being spacked. But I honestly do not see the SPACs dying off unless in the United States, they change the regulatory protocol related to going public. If they make it easier 
to go public, then I think these SPACs will will die off. But in the interim, no way. I think they're here to stay. Excellent. And, and Anthony, for this next part of our podcast, we're going to do something a little different uh, since you're a very special guest. We're going to shoot across some fast fire questions. That does not mean you have to answer them quickly. Uh, please take your time with answering them. But uh, let's, uh, let's jump into our first one here. So Anthony, what was it like uh, working as a White House Director of Communications under the Trump administration? Well, it happened very quickly. You know, I was fired after 11 days. So I guess uh, my fast fire question would be, uh, it was incredibly stressful and it happened very quickly and it was somewhat relieving. Although I was disappointed when I got fired, I was also relieved. And, and why specifically relieved, if you don't mind diving into that a bit? Well, you know, Mr. Trump was hard to work with. You know, it, you know, it was after the fact. It's four years later. But I got fired in July of 2017. It was a very big deal at that time, a very big media sensation. But uh, it turned out, you know, over the ensuing years, another 80 people left after my departure. And a lot of those people were either fired or they resigned or something happened with Mr. Trump where he was angrily tweeting at them. And, and you know, he just, he was a very difficult guy to work with and for. And so it was almost relieving, you know, the fact that uh, he fired me, I didn't have to work with him anymore. It almost took, it took, it took a lot of stress away from me, if you will. What do you look at when picking an investment, what, what makes you tick? Well, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think in something like Bitcoin or the crypto universe, it is the macroeconomic trends, the meta trends. I think in a security, like a uh, publicly traded liquid stock, I think there's a lot of different qualitative and quantitative factors. But in addition to having good fundamentals in a business and a good management team, I've got to believe that there's a consistent story related to the future growth of the company. If it's a private equity, um, I'm typically buying things that are late stage. I, I have not been a great successful A round investor. I have too many misses, not enough hits, but I have been more successful as a late stage investor in private companies. So I have a investment in something called Chime, um, I own a piece of the buy now, pay later, a company known as Klarna in Europe. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Plaid, the software company that helps these uh, fintech companies communicate with each other. I own a piece of that. And uh, those are all private, but I made those decisions based on the, the growth rates and the quality of the management team. What is something about your industry that you feel like has really surprised you lately? Well, the reason I'm hesitating, I want to think about this. I think what surprised me the most about my industry is the slow adaptation into the world of decentralized finance. Like I'm surprised that a JP Morgan or a Goldman Sachs hasn't gone out and bought Coinbase as an example. I'm surprised by that. This next set of podcast questions will be a bit more personal. What has fundamentally changed about, you know, what you do today or about your work today from when you initially started? 
Well, unsurprising would be the remote work and the ease of that. Uh, we worked from our houses for a little over a year. I think we got a tremendous amount done. We were extraordinarily productive. So that was unsurprising, but that's something that changed dramatically from when I first got started in the industry. There was no way uh, 30 plus years ago that we would have been able to do that. The second thing that I think that uh, observation that I would make is that the, uh, the people, the quality of the people in our industry, you know, and I'm sort of embarrassed. I, I mean, number one, I don't think I could have gotten into Harvard Law School in 2020, you know, 21, 2016. Let's say, I, let's say I got into Harvard Law School in 1986. So 30 years later in 2016, could I have gotten into Harvard Law School? I think the answer is no. I think that the quality of the people, the depth of experience, the backgrounds of the younger people has been incredibly refreshingly surprising to me. When, if you were to look back at life, right, who have been some of the most influential people in your life and how have they uh, impacted you? Well, you know, the cliche answer would be to say, you know, my mom and dad and grandparents and stuff like that. And obviously they were a big impact, but the, the thing about my life, you know, is I, I grew up in a, a blue collar family. It was like a lower to middle class family. And my dad was not formally educated. He had a high school diploma and he worked on a rig. He worked on a crane. He was basically an operating engineer or a crane operator for 40 plus years. So he was a great role model as related to his work ethic and things like that. But I didn't really have somebody that I could lean on from an intellectual perspective. So I would say the person that had the greatest influence on me was a professor when I was at Tufts University by the name of Saul Gittleman. Uh, Saul was uh, the provost of the school. He taught German literature, uh, uh, German writers. He taught a, a course on uh, American baseball, a course on the Holocaust. Uh, I took most of his courses. He was one of my faculty advisors and he's 87 years young today. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, he was a big impact on me, very big influence. Out there today, there are multiple, multiple news articles on you. And what do you feel that people misunderstand about you the most as a hedge fund veteran in the industry? Well, I mean, listen, I, I think I'm, no, I think I'm mostly known for my 11 disastrous days inside the White House. So I think if people covered those stories, they probably got a one dimensional, picture of me. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, if you looked at my career or my resume and things that I've done, things that I've built, uh, my family, uh, I think it's been a pretty, pretty amazing. And so what, you know, and I feel very blessed, but I think what sometimes happens in life when you have a high profile, particularly you're in a political office, people want to define you. And, and obviously your adversaries want to make out the worst version of you while you're out there trying to demonstrate the best version of yourself. So um, I maybe, maybe people misunderstand me. That's okay. I think what you, what it comes down to Kunal, and I, and I would say this to all the young people that listen to you, and you have a really great young, young following is we have to, and it's super hard to do by the way, but we have to do our best not to care about what other people think. You know, my grandmother used to say, what other people think of you is none of your business. And I'm 57 years old. It is still tough for me to get there. 
I do sometimes get bothered by what other people think and or say about me. Having said that, okay, I don't think uh, I'm as bad as I was when I was 25 years old. And I think as we get older, if we spend less time thinking about what other people think, and we just spend more time doing, uh, I think what you find is that we're, uh, we're in way better shape. And so don't compare yourself to others and don't think about what other people think of you. Those are my messages. I have to say, I totally agree with that, right? Um, when, when I think someone worries about how other people think of you, you're, in, a, in a way, you're giving up that, that power to, to enjoy yourself. Exactly. Right? And, and the opportunity to, to have happiness. Exactly. So, Anthony, you've had an amazing you know, career, right? Where you've been able to go and meet some fascinating high-level people, one of them also being yourself today. In your opinion, what are some habits of highly effective people? Well, you know, again, I, this is an observation. It's a broad observation, but I think that uh, we all have the same number of hours and minutes in the day. So how do people make things more productive? I want you to think of the internet for a second, and I want you to think of Bitcoin and crypto and decentralization. I think over time, what I've discovered is that the more something is decentralized, the more powerful it actually is. Let's take the American government as an example. Uh, the founding fathers set it up in a decentralized way. There's checks and balances, so there's no real power center. Each group has some level of power, but they have to fight it out with each other to get something done. I think that's the reason why the country's been so successful and why we've, we've been able to last 245 years. Uh, if you take any of these great business leaders, men or women, by decentralizing, by pushing autonomy and delegation and opportunity to the broadest group of people, that's where you've seen the biggest success. So let's just use Jeff Bezos as an example of this. Over a 25, 30-year period of time, he grew Amazon in a number of different ways, in the server business, the cloud computing business, he grew it on the Hollywood stage as it relates to Amazon Prime and your ability to use it as an interface for streaming. He obviously created a retail store, which we, we could call the everything store. Uh, he acquired the Whole Foods market. I mean, I could list several more different things that he's done. All the while, he was taking personal money and investing it in Blue Origin, his own rocket company. And so what you find about somebody like Jeff Bezos my observation is that he's really good at decentralizing. He's really good at empowering the people around him and growing a team that can take on responsibility, take on levels of autonomy and risk that allows for the scalability. You know, I have some friends of mine in the industry that are successful, but they're also, their nicknames are called the bottleneck because all the decisions that happen inside the company have to flow through them. And I think that's a negative. They could probably be way more successful if they were willing to give up some of that power. You know, I think that's also true politically. I, I said to one of my adversaries in the White House, uh, Reince Priebus, who was the former chief of staff, not a guy that I liked or care for, 
I said, your problem is, is that you're trying to control things. If you give power away and you empower others, you become more powerful. So I think that's the number one hallmark that I've seen of the most successful people I've come in contact with. So to really sum up that last sentence, really truly paying it forward to society in a, in a sense. A hundred percent and empowering young people, mentoring people, bringing people together, uh, but also giving them a voice and giving them a level of independence. Truly well said. And to wrap up our call with our last couple of questions, um, what have been some interesting reads uh, that you would you know, recommend or that you've read lately? Okay. I mean, I've got so many different books on my desk uh, and I'm a constant reader. Uh, so if you like science fiction, uh, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian and he wrote uh, uh, The Artemis Project, he just came out with a new book called Hail Mary, which I thought was terrific. Uh, if you like spy reading, Daniel Silva, his new book called The Cellist was absolutely terrific. It was a really contemporized view of what's going on in the United States and around the world. If you like reading nonfiction that's geopolitical, I would recommend H.R. McMaster's book called Battlegrounds. Very, very good description of what's going on geopolitically around the world. Um, trying to give you some sleeves of ideas from different uh, genres. Uh, if you want to learn about the COVID-19 crisis and the mistakes that were made and how we can make ourselves safer from a public health and safety perspective, I would read Preventable by Andy Slavitt. Uh, and my last book, and you probably could tell by the way I was talking about Jeff Bezos, uh, Brad Stone just wrote a book called Amazon Unbound, which is a sort of part two version of the Everything Store, a book that he wrote about four or five years ago about Amazon and Jeff. So so those are books that I'm reading. They're, they're on my nightstand or I've completed them this summer. And Anthony, what do you look for uh, when spotting talent? So, I, you know, it's interesting because there's a, a lot of very smart people. Uh, and as I pointed out earlier, the resumes that I see are exceptionally strong, uh, very deep. But ultimately, for me, what it boils down to is does the person recognize that relationships matter more than money? If they do, that's a big plus for me. And then secondarily, is this person have what Simon Cow said about singers, which is the X factor? And what does that mean? Well, that means that, uh, you know, I'm talking to you right now through my Apple hardtop computer. Uh, but would the person be willing to eat through the glass of this computer to get to where they want to go? Is, are they unstoppable? Are they not going to be blanched by a setback or something that goes wrong in their life? If that's the case, I want that person on my team. Because invariably, whether we like it or not, we're going to be faced with setbacks. And it's how we handle them and how we come out of them that makes all the difference. And to dive into this just a, just a bit deeper, what has been one of the biggest failures which you've had in life and what steps and processes did you follow to overcome that? Well, you know, listen, it's personal. I mean, the, the biggest failure that I had in my life was the 
dissolution of my first marriage, you know, and, and, you know, I would take that as my biggest failure, frankly. Uh, and, you know, listen, it happens, you know, we were mismatched as a great person. Uh, we were mismatched, not the end of the world to be mismatched, but we, we, we had to get through that in a way that was going to be fair and healthy from our kids' perspective. And so for me, what I would say to you is um, when I reflect upon things that I've done well in my life and things that I haven't done so well, that's sort of my greatest failure. Um, I don't view my White House short-lived career as a failure necessarily, because I was actually talking about this with somebody earlier. The number of people that I've met, and perhaps even including yourself, that now know who I am as a result of that failure has been an incredible part of my life. I, you know, I have relationships and friendships now with a good many people uh, that I would have never have met but for my time inside the White House. You know, and I'll give you one example. There's a woman I hired here. Uh, she left ABC News. She was the head of talent there. Uh, she now works here at Skybridge and Salt. I met her when I went on The View, which is the talk show, the daytime talk show for ABC, the network ABC here in the United States. And had I not been fired from the White House, I never would have been on that talk show and I would never have her and her skill set working here inside my company. So, um, you know, there's a silver lining in everything. So sometimes your failures or what your perception is of a setback is actually a net positive. So would you go as far as to say things don't happen to you in life, but they happen for you? Yeah. And it's what, what is happening to you and how you're reacting to it that makes all the difference. And to wrap up our call with our last question for the day, what piece of advice would you give to our listeners from the journey you've had so far in life? Take more risk. Uh, be willing to fail. Um, if you're pursuing a dream, uh, don't fill yourself with the energy of a self-doubter. Fill yourself with the energy of an achiever. Uh, don't be worried about a setback. Sometimes these setbacks are big opportunities. Uh, have a good sense of humor. Um, and Mel Brooks, the immortal American comedian, 95 years old, Mel. Uh, Mel Brooks once said something I often repeat to people, relax, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. And I think if you live by that, uh, you're going to have a lot of fun in your life. Anthony, it was a pleasure having you on the Geeks of the Valley podcast. And thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck out there. Wishing you the best. 